Uh, We're in Romans chapter 15, and we read beginning at verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures and to the exposition of it to follow. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today to thank you for being God. Thank you for All you reveal in the scriptures about yourself, it's clear from this text in Romans that you have revealed that you are a sovereign God who can cause circumstances and you can orchestrate things to fulfill your perfect will. It's also clear from this text of scripture that you've put within your sovereign work the necessity of your people praying so that we actually share in the outworking of your sovereign will. What an amazing grace it is to think about the fact that you would allow people like us to actually talk to you and actually be part of the fulfillment of your will in the prayers that you answer. What a wonderful, humbling reality that is. And we realize, Lord, that all of this, our ability to talk with you and to communicate with you and expect that you'll answer our prayers is all due to the wonderful relationship that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, there are families today that are in need of your comforting grace right now. We want to pray for them and pray in their behalf. We pray for Robert Glidden and the family there in the home going of Florence. We pray for the Johnson family in the home going of Margie. We pray for the Dibon family in the home going of David, the Vlistra family in the home going of Harold, the Ditos family in the home going of Mary. Lord, there's nothing that we can do to change any of this. You are sovereign. You've ordained life. You ordain when we live, when we die. But we can pray for families, and we can uphold them in prayer. And right here in this very text, we read that you're a God of peace. So we pray that in each case, and in each family, and in each mind, and in each heart, you would grant peace. We pray for those who have needs here today. We pray that you meet them. Pray for those that are sick today. We pray you heal them. We pray those who are lost today that you would save them. For those that are struggling, we pray you strengthen them. We pray all of these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England for 38 years. He started there in 1854. He died in 1892. And during that time, under his ministry, that Metropolitan Tabernacle was constructed. Now, the original tabernacle that he built burned down in 1898, just six years after he died. The only thing that was left of it at that point was the portico and the basement, but the tabernacle was rebuilt. Then in 1941, in World War II, a bomb hit it. And the only thing left again was the portico in the basement, and it was rebuilt in 1957. While Mr. Spurgeon was there one Sunday, four college students happened to be in London. 
and they wanted to go to a Sunday night service to hear Mr. Spurgeon preach. And while they were waiting for the doors to open, a man greeted them and said that he would give them a tour of the building. He said, let me show you the heating plant of this church. He took them down a stairway, and when they got down into a basement, he opened the door, and on that particular Sunday afternoon before the evening service, there were 700 people praying for the service that would take place that night. He quietly shut the door and said, right there, gentlemen, is the power and fuel behind this ministry. The man who was giving them the tour The man who said that to them, of course, was Charles Haddon Spurgeon himself. Spurgeon knew the value of people in the church praying for him in the ministry. He knew the value of the scriptures, and he knew the value of prayer, and he learned that idea from the scriptures and from the word of God. Any ministry that is going to be powerfully used of the Lord, any minister who's going to be powerfully used of the Lord will have people behind it praying people behind it praying. There's no short-changing this. This is not gimmickry here. This is real prayer. And that certainly was the idea that was in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Now, being a true minister of God is tough. You face things that are tough. Having a ministry that's accomplishing something for the Lord is tough. It's not a playground. It's a battleground. I mean, a ministry that's committed to the truth of God is in warfare. And to get through the warfare, you need power. Otherwise, it'll drain you. It can crush you. And Paul knew that the key to having that power in ministry was people praying. In fact, what he says here as he's about to begin the ending to this book of Romans is for any true ministry of God to be impacting And effective, it must have believers who pray for the minister and pray for the ministry. Pretty simple thesis. You'll see him develop it in these verses this morning. That's clearly what Paul wants to teach in this passage. Now, as near as we can determine, when we did our study of the doctrine of prayer, there are about ten types of different types of words that are used to describe ten types of different kinds of prayer in the New Testament, most of them used by the Apostle Paul himself. The first type of prayer is the prayer for salvation. Paul mentioned that in chapter 10 of Romans. He said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So in order for a person to be saved, they must, he, she must invite the Lord Jesus Christ to save from sin. There must be some type of calling on the Lord for salvation if there's going to be salvation. We call that the prayer of salvation. Then there is a prayer that is called the prayer of entreaty. You pray out of a great need. You have a need or you sense a need and you go to the Lord and you entreat the Lord on behalf of the need. Then there's the prayer of intercession. And that's when a person is specifically praying to meet the needs of another person. You learn about the needs that someone else has and you go to prayer for them so that God will meet the need. And then there's the prayer of thanksgiving. Every prayer should include thanksgiving. A prayer that offers thanks to the Lord should be a primary factor of every time we pray, offering thanks to the Lord. Then there's the prayer of petition. Paul talked about that in Philippians chapter 4. It's a prayer where people are petitioning God for something specific. They're praying about things specifically that they're asking God to do. Then there's the prayer of confession. That's the prayer a believer makes when he fails. 
If a believer fails, he makes a prayer of confession and he confesses sin in order to restore fellowship with God. That's what it's all about, confessing the sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us the sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then there's the prayer of destruction. A prayer of destruction. Paul prayed that. It was a prayer of destruction of someone. He specifically did that for Humanaeus and Alexander. He said, I have delivered them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He made some type of apostolic prayer to the Lord in turning them over to Satan for destruction. Then there's the prayer of exaltation. Jude talks about that. It's a prayer that just exalts God. I think we need more of that where we're praying to just exalt the Lord. Then there's the prayer of submission, the prayer that's willing to do God's will. The Lord Jesus prayed that the night that he was betrayed. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It was a prayer that would admit that I'm going to submit to the will of God. And then there is a reverent approach to God prayer, prosukomai. That's the prayer word Paul uses here, prosukomai. And I think what Paul is doing by using that word is he's saying, I want the people of the church to very reverently gather together in a very reverent way, and I want them to go to God on my behalf. That's what he's requesting here. I want the people of God to very reverently bow their heads and hearts before the Lord, and I want them to pray on my behalf. That's what he's going to ask them to do. Now, most of the time, when we pray, we pray for ourselves, and we certainly have that right. Most of the time, we go to the Lord, and we're praying about things that are important to us and needs that we have and situations that we face most of the time, that's what we're doing. In this case, what the Apostle Paul is suggesting to the church is, I want you reverently gathering together to pray on my behalf. Now, I want to show you why he's doing this. I want you to back up to Acts chapter 20, if you would. Just go back a few pages to Acts chapter 20. And I want to show you what he has in his mind when he asks these people to pray for him. He realized that he was going to ultimately go to Jerusalem and he wasn't expecting to be readily received. What we read in Acts 20, 23 is, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and affliction await me. Paul knew, man, I'm going to Jerusalem to deliver this large sum that I've collected for them, and I realize it's going to be tough. It's going to be one tough ministry. I'm going back there. I'm going to face some negative stuff. So what he's asking the people to do is he said, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray that when I get back there that things will go well. Look, we're in war. He was in war. And he's up against Satan and demons. He's up against people that hated him. He's up against people that hated truth, up against the world of people that didn't even know the truth, and they were making life difficult for him. These were people that weren't right with God. I mean, they weren't concerned about being right with God at all, and he said, I'm going head to head with these people, and so what I'm asking you to do is you pray for me. And there are six observations we want to make about this prayer. He says, first of all, prayer is to be something that I'm urging. He says in verse 30, 
Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to stop there with I urge you, brethren. It's the same word that he used when he got through that doctrine section of Romans in chapters 1 to 11 when he says, now I urge you by the mercies of God, apply that theology to your practical life. I mean, that's what he does. Apply the doctrine of grace that I've taught your practical life. I urge you to do that. He's using the same word here. He's coming alongside the people, exhorting them and encouraging them to pray. Now, he doesn't need people to do his job. And he doesn't need people to do his work. What he needs people to do were to pray for him so he could do the work. And people needed to be encouraged and challenged to pray for him. So he's saying, look, you need to pray for me and where this ministry is going. Here's the greatest apostle on the face of the earth. You think about this. This man has actually seen Jesus Christ himself. This man has been caught up to the third heaven. This is the most powerful apostle on the earth. And he's encouraging people to pray. Pray for him. And if that guy needs it, you can be sure we do. We need the prayers of the people of God to do anything for the Lord. And so Paul said, I urge you, you pray for me. Secondly, he said, prayer is something Paul urges for the brethren. He makes that point clear. I urge you, brethren. I don't think people realize the importance of the people of God and what they have the power to do. The people of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ can move the Lord. You'll see it in just a minute. They can move somehow in conformity with the will of God to accomplish big things. And that's what these people were being asked to pray for. You know, William Carey, who was the missionary to India in the late 1700s and early 1800s, said, look, I'm willing to go down into the pit as long as the rest of you will hold the rope. And what he was metaphorically saying there is, I'm willing to do the work as long as the rest of you will hold me up in prayer and support me in prayer, because that's what it's going to take. Prayer to God to bless a ministry is only acceptable, by the way, if it's being prayed by the family of God. When God's people are praying, when men and women of God pray, successful ministry is on the way. And Paul never encourages unsaved people to pray for him. He never asks unsaved people to pray for him. But he does say, pray for me, brethren. But then he says, prayer is that which is connected to the Trinity. In verse 30, he says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. You have three members of the Trinity listed right there. Prayer is made to God the Father. It is made through the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the three proper nouns that the Apostle Paul uses for the Lord Jesus Christ, those are the three nouns, express who Paul knew Jesus Christ was. And you need to understand this. This was a guy who at one time was dedicated to religion. He was a religious guy who was dedicated to formalism. He was dedicated to Old Testament law and religious things. He didn't believe that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. In fact, when you read the account that's given of him in Acts chapter 9, I mean, he literally is on a vendetta to try to track down every single believer and kill him. I mean, that was his goal, jail him or kill him. And Paul was on a vendetta to do that. 
When he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he's on his face, on the ground, and while he's in that situation, the Lord Jesus reveals himself to Paul. So when you see Paul use these proper nouns, you need to realize this was a guy at one time who was against Jesus Christ. But now he says he's the Lord. He's the Lord. He's God. He's sovereign master over everything. He's Jesus. He's the Savior. And he is Christ. He's the Jewish Messiah. He came to realize who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And he said, I'm urging you by him, by the Lord Jesus Christ, God, Savior, Messiah. I'm urging you, and also by the power of the Spirit of God. Both of those things are coming in harmony. You have the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that enables us to talk to God the Father. You have two members of the Trinity involved in this. So we pray to God the Father through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit of God. And to address God the Father, you must have the Spirit of God in you. And to have the Spirit of God in you, you must believe in Jesus Christ. So we're praying to God the Father through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the love of the Spirit of God. And when God's Spirit is working in someone's life properly, he, she will sense a need to pray for other people. When you love in the Spirit, when you have the kind of love that the Spirit of God would produce, the context of this is you'll be moved to pray. So when you love people right, you'll be moved to pray for them. If you love your children right, you'll be moved to pray for your children. That's what the Spirit of God would have you do. If you love your grandchildren right, you'll be moved to pray for your grandchildren. That's what the Spirit of God would do. If you love your mate right, you'll be moved to pray for your mate. That's what the Spirit of God would prompt people to do. If you love your co-workers, your church, or your minister right, you'll be prompted by the Spirit of God to pray. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. The love of the Spirit of God produces people to pray to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the fourth observation is prayer is that which Paul says brethren need to strive. And I want to point that out in verse 30. To strive together with me in your prayers. That infinitive to strive Soon agonizomai means agonize. We get our word agonize from this. You know, prayer is not easy. It's not an easy discipline. And believe you me, I need just as much this challenge as you would need this challenge. Because prayer is not easy. It's easy to close your eyes and thank the Lord for the food. That doesn't take much. But to actually get involved where you're fervently praying for something or you're actually involved in fervently praying for someone is a real agonizing experience. We're talking about intense striving. This particular word was used in the first century to refer to wrestlers that would get into a wrestling match and there's a real striving to win it. And the Apostle Paul is basically saying that's the way you need to be viewing prayer. You need to realize that prayer is a struggle. It's a wrestling match. You're wrestling with the Lord, and you're wrestling against your flesh. You're wrestling against the world. You're wrestling against the demonic warfare. 
And in order to have victory in this world, we need prayer. And Paul says, look, I'm encouraging you, please, please agonize and strive together with me, for me, in your prayers. Which brings us to the fifth observation. Paul wants them to pray for a specific purpose. Verses 31 to 32. Now there are four specific requests that Paul wants these believers to pray about. They all start with a word that begins with the letter S. We can assume that by using these purposes that God has put in his word, Paul believed and God is inspired that these are critical, prayer is critical to these things happening. We can make that assumption based on the fact that Paul uses these purpose clauses. So in order for these kinds of things to happen, we can assume God is saying to us there needs to be these prayers. And the first thing on the list is he would be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, a prayer for safety and ministry. That's what he says in verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Now just think about that. Paul realized what he was going back into there in Jerusalem and in Judea. He realized, I'm going into a hornet's nest. I'm going back there and I'm going to face off with people who want to kill me. I mean, they not only don't like me, they want me silenced. They've been trying to do it ever since he believed in Jesus Christ and started communicating the grace of God. And Paul believed that his safety and protection was due in part to the prayers of the people of God at the church. And he wanted this church of Rome praying for him. He had traveled a lot of miles, he had gone to many places, and he believed it was the prayers of the people of God that kept him safe. Now, the people specifically that Paul refers to here that he would need deliverance from are those Jews that were in Judea. Those were dangerous, dangerous religious people. And Paul said, I'm going right in there. I'm taking this offering that I've collected back to Jerusalem. I'm going to give it to those poor saints who need it. I'm going back there and I'm going to tell about how these Gentile people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they've taken this offering to give to these believers that are here. And he knew the warfare he was going to face. And he knew that there's a real hostility to the grace of God. There still is. If you present, you're saved by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. You're not saved by works. You're not saved by religion. You're not saved by trying to keep the Old Testament law. You're not saved by any ritual stuff. I mean, you will find you're in war with most of the religious world. And Paul said, I realize that to be kept safe in that world, I need your prayers. Please pray for me. Secondly, he believed that having an acceptable ministry to the saints in Jerusalem was contingent upon prayer, so it was a prayer for success in ministry. He says in verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. I mean, Paul was going right back to an area where he had at one time hurt a lot of those Christians. I mean, he tried to track them down. And he says, I need your prayers. I'm going back there and I need you to pray for me that when I get back there, those saints are not going to view me in suspicion, but those saints are going to want to be taught by me. They'll accept this offering. They will realize that I'm a different person. 
He said, I realize what I'm going into when I go back there. And I realize that success in ministry is determined by you people praying for me. Thirdly, he said he would be able to come to them in joy by the will of God. It was a prayer for God's direct sovereignty in ministry. Now, I find verse 32 fascinating. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. God's sovereignty is so deep we can't even fathom it. Now, apparently, in the sovereignty of God, he has somehow made it so prayers can actually play a part in his sovereign will. You have not because you ask not. We can assume that that statement right there would indicate that there are some things God would sovereignly do if God's people would pray. And if they don't pray, he's not going to sovereignly do it. He has set up those principles. What we know in studying theology is that God is immutable. He does not change. But God is not immobile. He does move. And apparently what God has deemed in his sovereign plan is that part of my sovereignty is I've built into the system of sovereignty the fact that the prayers of the people of God can move me to accomplish things. And that's what Paul's teaching here. He is actually teaching that if you pray for me, I can go back to Jerusalem and I can minister and everything will be fine and I'll get back there and the ministry will go well and then I will come to you and be able to minister by the power of the Spirit of God and it will be the complete will of God in this. That's what he believed. And that's what he's teaching. His fourth request is that he would find refreshing and rest in their company, a prayer for satisfaction in ministry, he says in verse 32, and find refreshing rest in your company. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to have a joyful, satisfying ministry when he got to Rome. He wanted a refreshing ministry when he got to Rome. He said, look, if you'll support me in prayer, that can all happen. God can use his sovereign power to perfect his will in this matter. In his will, he can bring me to you, and we'll have a wonderful, great ministry together. The sixth observation is he prayed for God's peace for them all. In verse 33, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, why does he bring up now the God of peace when he's just addressing the importance of prayer? Because, ladies and gentlemen... Prayer is a critical part of tapping into the peace of God. Many times people who lack peace, they're running around talking to all kinds of people except the one they really should be talking to. The one who really we should be going to is the Lord. He's the one who can give us peace that passes understanding no one else can give us that. I mean, we get hit with things and things that we can't explain. Where are we going to generate peace? By just talking to everybody that we know? Just as it were, spilling our guts to other people? Are we going to find peace in that? I doubt it. Paul says, I'll tell you what you need to understand is through prayer, you tap into the peace of God. Amen. Truly. That's what it means. You tap into the peace of God, the great peace of God, when you pray. So Paul says to these believers, I want you to 
uphold me in prayer so that I can go back to Jerusalem, deliver that great gift that I've collected from the entire Gentile world, and then I want to come to you and I want to have a great ministry with you. So now the question comes, did it work? Did those people pray and did it happen? Well, answer to prayer request number one. Paul was delivered from the unbelieving Jews. Go back to Acts 21. It's a close call, but he was delivered. In Acts 21, verse 31, we read, While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he'd done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him brought back to the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Boy, that's a close call there. I mean, he got back to Jerusalem there, and he's about ready to be killed. And just at the 11th hour, it's like God intervenes in this bizarre set of circumstances. And the way he's actually going to end up going to Rome is he gets beat up, and then he gets locked up, and he'll spend the next four years in jail, two of them in Caesarea, and two of them in Rome. And so God is answering prayer request number one, but he's sure doing it his way. How about prayer request number two? Did he have an impacting ministry to Jerusalem? Well, if you're open to Acts chapter 21, look at verse 17. After he arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard him, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you and your teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Paul went back to Jerusalem, and as you see in that text, there were a large number of brethren, and they were rejoicing that he was back there. He had the chance to teach the grace of God. He said, look, what I've been teaching, I didn't tell anybody they couldn't circumcise their child. What I told them is circumcision has nothing to do with justification. And he goes on and he tells them, I've told you you're saved by the grace of God. You're not saved by keeping the Old Testament law, and you're not saved by any traditions or all of these Sabbath day rituals or rules. You're not saved by that at all. You're saved totally by the grace of God. And the people back there were rejoicing. That was answer to prayer request number two. He did have an impacting ministry there. Thirdly, he did get to Rome. He did get to Rome. It's an amazing display of the sovereignty of God when he gets to Rome. You have a plot to kill Paul, so he gets a trial before Agrippa. And at the trial, he appeals to be sent to Rome to appear before Caesar. 
And then Paul was taken by a ship to Rome, and on his way there, the ship gets in a wreck. And then he ends up on an island, and Paul is bitten by a deadly viper that he shakes off as if it's nothing. And then he ends up in Rome, and he goes there as a prisoner. And Paul said about all of those circumstances, they all had been used of the Lord to make a tremendous impact on the lost world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said to the people, please, please pray. Please pray for me. He said, you have no idea of the pressures I'm under in this ministry and the pressures that the world was trying to stop Paul with. We learn things here about prayer that are significant. First of all, God does answer specific prayers when his people pray. We also learn that God does not answer specific prayers of the people the way his people expect. God's ways aren't our ways. I mean, you would never expect when Paul has people praying for him, well, this is how it's going to work. They're going to be threatened to be killed. They're going to lock you up in jail. That'll get you to Rome. Then you'll get in Rome. You'll be there for a couple of years. They'll let you out for a little while. You can go over to Spain, then come back to Rome, and that's where you'll end up dying. I mean, that's not the way you and I would script it, but that's God's sovereignty in this. And finally, God does answer prayers of his people the way he knows is the best way to answer them. Now, I want to just thank you for praying for this church and praying for this ministry. There's no question God has used this ministry and is using the ministry, and I do believe it's due to the prayers of the people. When we pray, there are six ways God can answer prayer. First of all, he can answer an immediate yes. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. I mean, the Apostle Peter was in jail and the church was praying for Peter. Remember that story? It's in Acts chapter 12. And the church was praying for Peter and that very night, God answered that prayer. He sent angel to get Peter out of jail and he got him out of there and off he went into his apostolic ministry. So God can at times answer an immediate yes. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Secondly, God can answer with a direct no. We know that happened in the life of the Apostle Paul a time or two. In fact, there were three times he had a thorn in the flesh he went to the Lord on. He said, I went to God three times and asked him to remove this from me. And God said, no, no, I've got a better plan for you, Paul. My grace is sufficient. You're going to learn a lot about my grace if I don't take this thorn away from you. So the answer to Paul's prayer request there was no. Another way God can answer prayer is wait. Sometimes... God can answer a prayer, but just not immediately. Here's a great example. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He'd wanted to go to Rome for a long... He prayed about going to Rome. But the fact of the matter is, God said, no, no, you have other things you need to get done first before I send you there. So God had prevented the answer to that prayer for quite a while, quite a few years. But years later, he did fulfill it. A fourth way that God can answer is he may answer work. Sometimes God's people don't need to pray about something anymore. They just need to get to work and get it done. For example, when we're told in 1 Corinthians, flee immorality, that's not something you need to pray about. You just need to run away from it, get away from it. So sometimes we don't have to pray about it. We just need to get working. Fifthly, God may answer, keep praying and watch. I think that's what we're doing when we pray for the Lord to come get us soon. 
We keep praying the Lord will come get us soon, and as we're praying the Lord will come get us soon, we keep watching. We keep watching and waiting for it to happen. And finally, God may answer, pray more. Pray more. Keep pleading. Keep going before the Lord. If you keep praying to the Lord, you can touch the heart of God. Prayer is part of the sovereign plan of God. Now, God has done some powerful things with this ministry, and if you want to see where the power comes from, take a look at those men and women who gather Wednesday night to pray. Take a look at those ladies that meet on Thursday morning. Take a look at those men that meet on Friday morning. Take a look at those pre-service prayer meetings that meet every time before we have a service. There's the fuel. And even if you can't officially be at those services, what you can do is you can pray. And we need your prayers here. That's what Paul believed. That's what Spurgeon believed. And that's what we believe. May we pray. One of the prayers that Paul mentions is the prayer that calls upon the Lord for salvation. Have you ever personally called upon Jesus Christ to save you from your sins? If you've never done that, do it now. It's a private moment between you and the Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You invite Jesus Christ to come in and take over your life right now. Our Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you for the truths that are in the word of God. Forgive us for the lack that we have in our prayer lives, Lord. We all need more discipline in this area. I certainly do. And I thank you for people that take prayer seriously. Thank you for a praying church that we have here, Lord, and for people that pray for this ministry. Thank you for what you've done with this ministry. We pray you would continue to use it in a powerful way, Lord, to communicate your truth effectively. Pray that you would continue to keep us close to you, that we would be ministering in a way the Spirit of God would want us to minister, that we would live right and pray right. In Jesus' name, amen.